0: Good morning, church. Grace and peace to you all. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians will be in chapter 4 this morning, and we'll be looking at verses 8 to 11. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. This is a series I've been preaching on the Sunday night evening service, and so it's a pleasure to be able to bring it to you this morning, church. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. The title of my sermon this morning is Apostasy from the Gospel. Apostasy from the gospel. And once you find your places in your Bible's loved ones, please stand with me for the public reading of scripture. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning as well. Galatians 4, 8 to 11, apostasy from the gospel. This is the Word of God Church, starting here through the words of Paul in Galatians 4, and verse 8. Paul the Apostle writes, Formerly, when he did not know God, You were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of God, church. Let's go before him in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have given us. God, it is a gift. It is a grace that we can gather in your name, Lord, as the children of God, as the family of God, to sing praises of worship to you, Lord, and God, to be able to gather to hear you speak, Lord. God, for, Lord, you have revealed yourself not only in creation, but more specifically in your word. And it's when we hear your word preached, Lord, that is where we hear you, Lord. And so, Father, we just pray that God be with us this morning, Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters here who are in person and those who are away. We pray for their um, soon recovery. We pray that, Lord, Lord, that be with them, Lord, just to help them have ears to listen, Lord, so that, God, they will not just be hearers who forget, but doers who act, Lord, to become more like your son, Jesus, so that, God, they live more in accordance to your likeness, in accordance to your perfect and goodwill for them. I pray that for my brothers and sisters. For those who are here, Lord, God, or who are listening online, Lord, who do not know you, Jesus, we pray that, we first and foremost, we thank you, Lord, that they are here with us, and we just pray that, God, you would just cause them just to realize the goodness of the gospel, that it is true, and that there is no other name under heaven that says but you King Jesus and that by the power of the Holy Spirit that they will just realize their sinfulness against you repent and place their faith in you as Lord and Savior we pray that for any visitors here who do not know you and just for myself Lord I just pray that help me Lord just to deliver your word to your people that God um, it is your word nourishing your sheep here Lord um, as, as you just hear the words these words of life that we have the blessing to and the privilege to listen to be with me Lord that I will not mess it up in any way but that God it is just your word going through your people and so Lord we thank you for this time together and we just lift up all these things in Jesus name we pray amen maybe see it at church perhaps one of my favorite films by Martin Scorsese Scorsese is one that came out a few years ago called Silence and the whole premise of this film is about two 17th century Jesuit priests heading to Japan their mission to find and rescue their former mentor who publicly denied the faith in Jesus Christ Yet, once these two priests reach Japan, they then discover a small group of Japanese Christians living out their faith secretly. And if they are discovered by the governing authorities in Japan, they are either forced to deny their faith in Christ or experience prolonged suffering leading to death. As a result, both of these priests, they witness the horrible and excruciating persecution of these Japanese Christians. One of the priests is even killed trying to say some. And yet it is this other priest who was eventually captured by the governing authorities and is then given an, a very difficult ultimatum, which is this: deny Christ and stop the suffering and murder of these Christians, or do not deny Christ and be held as a prisoner while the suffering and the, and the murder of these Christians continue. That was the ultimatum he was given, and as a result, this Jesuit priest, he denies his faith in Christ in order to save the lives. Of others therefore when I first saw this film when I was a senior in high school I was greatly troubled by it the film ended with this priest denying his faith in Christ to save other Christians and it seemingly endorsed that apostasy is a possible option of love and obedience before Christ towards others and so as a young Christian I asked myself this question if I was in, if I myself was in this situation what would I do what should I do biblically? Be faithful in my allegiance to Christ, no matter the cost, or deny Christ if it's to save others. And as a result, after thinking about this, I concluded that no matter the circumstance, even this one right here, it is always wrong to deny Christ before others, because not only is it a denial of His sovereign lordship as as the Son of God, but it is also a denial of the Christian's hope, the Christian's living hope in Jesus as the Redeemer, as the Savior. In such a temptation of apostasy like this, it always lurks close to home to all of us loved ones. It's not something that's far in the future or never happened to us. This is a temptation that could befall us at any point in our Christian experience. Especially when you consider the times we live in, right? We live in a post-Christian culture that has continually grown each and every single day of its hatred towards the gospel. You hear so many deconversion stories from people on social media due to the scandals and hypocrisy of the American church. And just even to give an example of just just the times that we're living in, you just take churches like the Church of England and even the Roman Catholic Church, they are now on the slippery slope of embracing, really, homosexual marriages soon. They're not there yet, but they are on that slippery slope at the moment. And even besides that, right, even just our beliefs as Christians Bible-believing Christians who just want to be faithful to the Word of God regarding homosexuality, um, human sexuality, sanctity of human life, all these different things, these beliefs already place us as as outliers in society. And it's only a matter of time before the social pressures grow against us as Christians, leading to the test of either denying Christ or remaining faithful even during such persecution. And it's with this in mind, then, that Paul the Apostle gives a very important reminder here in Galatians 4, 8-11, which is this, that denying the gospel as a Christian, that's the key, denying the gospel as a Christian is the worst form of unbelief. Denying the gospel as a Christian is the worst form of unbelief. But why? That, That kind of sounds very radical, right? How can he say that, John? Well, we're going to see Paul, he's going to compare two kinds of knowledge, Two kinds of knowledge on why denying the gospel as a Christian is really the worst form of unbelief. The first kind of knowledge is that before knowing Christ, you worshipped many false gods. Before knowing Christ, you worshipped many false gods, as we'll see in verse 8. And the second kind of knowledge is that now knowing the gospel, you worship the one and true God. Now, knowing the gospel, you worship the one and true God, as we'll see in verses 9 to 11. And so it's with these two kinds of knowledge, that, as Paul kind of compares and contrasts them, that you're going to see by the end, like, wow, it is the worst form of unbelief if you deny the gospel as a Christian. And so let's turn to the first kind of knowledge this morning, loved ones, which again is this, that before knowing the gospel, you worshiped many false gods. So look at Galatians 4 in your Bibles, everyone. Paul writes these words: "Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not Gods." And so this passage here this morning, it is really the conclusion to Paul's defense of the gospel in his letter to the Galatians. And yet that then begs a question. Why does Paul find it necessary to do so in the first place, and that requires that you need to know something about the background of Paul's letter to the Galatians? And only once you know that will you really understand not only the message of his letter, but really the weight, the gravitas of these four verses that Paul is saying here in Galatians 4 8 to 11. And so what is going on here in Galatians? Especially since many of you um, don't normally come on Sunday nights, I need to give a brief summary really quick. Paul the Apostle, he writes to Gentile, that is non-Jewish, house churches in the region of southern Galatia, or in our modern day, Turkey. It's also one of the first churches that he plants in his first missionary journey. And yet, he writes this letter to them because he heard some troubling reports about them. He hears that Jewish Christians, or Judaizers as we can call them, they came from Jerusalem to these churches in Galatia. And what were they doing? They were deceiving them with a false gospel. And as a result, these Galatian Christians, they were beginning to turn away from the gospel of Jesus the Messiah to that of a false one. As Paul records in Galatians 1, 6-7, this is kind of his theme verse here. He says here that, I am astonished at you, Galatians. I am shocked that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now with that in mind then, what is this false gospel? What is this false gospel that these Judaizers were deceiving these Galatians? They were teaching that the Galatians need to be Jewish to be saved. In other words, they need to do good works of the law to make themselves right before God, such as circumcision for the men or observing the Jewish feasts. Only then, according to these Judaizers, could they be saved. Could they be true followers of Jesus the Messiah? And once Paul hears of this, in response, he writes this letter to the Galatians. He writes to the Galatians to not only rebuke them for their apostasy, but to remind them of the gospel. Of the gospel that Paul first preached to the Galatians and the gospel that they also believed in. How does he do this? Well, first, he builds his credibility by reminding him that the gospel that he preaches is not from any human source. Instead, Christ himself, the creator of the universe, he calls Paul to be his own messenger, to be his witness, to be his apostle. He entrusts him with his gospel of Christ crucified to go into all the nations and to preach the gospel. And that's what Paul does here to the Galatians. And once Paul does that by validating his own spiritual autobiography, how he became a Christian, he then begins defending the gospel. In other words, he teaches that no one, whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile a non-Jew ethnically, no one at the end of the day is saved by works of the law. You can't be saved by being a good person. That's what Paul is getting at. Because even if you're going to try, then you must be perfect because the standard is God. The creator God in heaven is perfect. He is the absolute standard of what is good and evil as the essence of goodness in itself. And yet, everyone knows that at the end of the day, no one is perfect. Everyone sins. Everyone does wrong. Everyone falls short because everyone knows that they ought to behave in a certain way and don't. As a result, because of that, the Bible says, as Paul teaches, the consequence of sin is the curse of God's law. In other words, it's eternal judgment in hell for rebellion against the creator God of the universe. And yet, there's good news. And the good news of the gospel is that there is freedom to be found. There is freedom to be found from the curse of God's law. Such freedom can only be found when you believe in the sinless God-man, Jesus the Messiah, by faith and faith alone. And we'll talk about how that works um, later this morning. But only then when you do that can you be justified, Paul says. Declared right before God, not by your own doing, not by your own good works, but what Christ has done on the cross for you. And you're able to receive that good news, that, that gift of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone and not by good works. That's what Paul teaches here as he defends his gospel. And as a result, if you believe in Jesus by faith, you, no longer be, you are no longer an enemy of God. Because before, we, before you believe in Jesus, we're all God's enemy. We have all sinned against him. We have all desired to do our own thing and rebelled against God in the process. And yet the goodness of the gospel, Paul says, if you believe in him by faith alone, you no longer are an enemy of God. Because Christ dies in your place on the cross. And as a result, it doesn't stop there. Not only do you cease being an enemy of God, but your status changes. You put off your old man being an enemy of God and you put on the new self, an adopted child, an adopted son and daughter of the living God by inheriting his promises, the promises of salvation in him. As Paul says this previously in Galatians 4, 6 to 7, he writes, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave But a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's what Paul has been teaching so far here in his letter to the Galatians. However, before Paul continues, Paul rebukes the Galatians here in our passage because they were denying their faith in Christ alone. The Galatians are indeed adopted as sons and daughters of the living God by being declared right before Him by faith, and yet their actions at this moment, it is not matching their confession. And so as a result, Paul calls them out here. He's calling them out here in our passage this morning in hopes that they will not only realize the, fo- the folly of their ways, but be restored back to God, to be restored back to the faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with, it's with all this in mind that he then says these words at the beginning of verse eight. And so look there one more time where Paul says this first part in verse eight. He says, formerly then, Galatians, when he did not know God. Now what does Paul mean by there? Well, Paul is saying this because he's referring back to the time when the Galatians did not know God. Because if you're a Christian, there was a time when we were not Christians, right? There was a time when we all didn't know Jesus. The same thing is true here for the Galatians. Before becoming Christians, sons of God, they were in this constant state of not knowing God. They were unbelievers, right? They were in a state of unbelieving unbelief because they didn't know the gospel. They didn't hear about Jesus. They're just doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. And as a result, they were not Christians or believers or followers of Jesus. And so it's, it's, it's with that in mind then that, well, why does Paul bring that up? Well, look at what he says at the next part of verse eight. He says that you Galatians at a time, you were not Christians. Why? He says this in verse eight. Look there, you were enslaved. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And if you read the context of Galatians here, Paul has been using a lot of this imagery of slavery, of being enslaved, being in prison, being shackled throughout Galatians 3 to 4. And the reason why he's using this imagery here of slavery is that he's really trying to communicate the spiritual state of the Galatians before faith in Jesus. Before they knew Christ by faith alone, they were in a state of slavery, Spiritual slavery, spiritual darkness. However, who were they enslaved to? Who were their slave masters that they, they can do nothing but obey as master and Lord? Because it wasn't Jesus. Paul writes, to those that by nature are not gods. That is who the Galatians used to serve before they served Jesus. In other words, the Galatians were enslaved to serving the false idols they once assumed to be gods. And this is really then a reference to the Galatians' pagan practice of polytheistic worship, of of worshiping all these different gods, all these different statues. Because before they came to faith in Christ, they truly worshiped false gods that were not gods by nature. They thought they existed, but they were not real. And it's with this observation that Paul makes two critical points here. First, he's making a key observation about really the heart of humanity, our heart as human beings. Because at the end of the day, whether you agree with it or not, Humanity are creatures who worship. Humanity is our creatures who worship, because at the end of the day, everyone is religious in some way, shape or form, because everyone worships. And now some of you might disagree with that statement, but, but ask yourself this question: What do you value most with your time, or with your money, or, through, or your resources, or with your life? Once you're able to ask that question, then you have a good idea of, behold, that is most likely your idol. That is most likely your God. And so I ask that because like, we're all creatures of worship. Whether you believe in Jesus or deny Jesus, we all worship something because we all value something at the end of the day. Because we're creatures of worship. That's what God made us. And yet, this leads to Paul's second observation here about calling the Galatians or recalling the Galatians' former way of life as unbelievers. He points out that humanity, because of this, has the tendency to worship everything in creation, but the creator God himself. And that's crazy when you think about it, because humanity has a tendency to worship, but not the one and true God, but false gods, false idols, besides the one and true living God. Consider what Paul says in Romans 1.25. He says that humanity has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And that's, and that's shocking, right? Because we as human beings, we know in our heart of hearts that God exists because we wouldn't be here unless he did. And yet we would rather worship the gift, the gift that God has given rather than the gift giver. And to us, that sounds ludicrous, right? Because you would never, if you receive the gift, you know, as Christmas comes along on your birthday, you would never receive a gift like, oh, thank you gift. I, I love you gift so much. Like, this is so awesome. Ignoring the person that gave it to you in the first place. That's ludicrous. That's crazy, and yet that's exactly what we do before God by worshiping everything else in creation but him alone. And this then begs another question. What is then an idol? What really makes a false god a false god? And to kind of just give a, a quick, easy definition, it's something I've heard over the years, an idol is anything. It's anything you place your faith and trust in to give you hope in this life. An idol is anything you place your faith and trust in to give you hope in this life. And although you have these ancient pagans like the Galatians, they actually worshipped these deities, right? They actually made statues out of wood and stone and they actually bowed down and worshipped them, right? And yet, by them doing it, and that seems very silly to us, I'll get to that point soon, you got you to keep in mind that when the Galatians did this themselves or just ancient pagans, these idols, these false gods, they were really manifestations of their inward desires, of what they really desired in their heart. Just think about it. You had gods about food. You had gods of money, gods of war, gods of love, sexual love, gods of wisdom, gods of wine, getting drunk. They had a god for everything, right, whether it was good or bad. That's just just how it worked back in the day. And yet, keeping that in mind, what this should show us then is that anything at the end of the day, whether it is sinful, don't do it, or that's good, there's nothing wrong with it anything at the end of the day can become an idol. You can place your faith, even in something good, more than the creator God who you're supposed to place your trust in. And yet, just because humanity makes idols in their own image, it does not mean that these are actual gods who exist. And that's Paul's point here. Consider what Paul also says elsewhere to his letter to the Corinthians. He says in chapter 8, verses 4 to 6, that therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, false gods... We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven on earth, as indeed there are many gods and as many lords, yet for us, he's talking about for Christians, there is one God, the Father, for whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. And so in other words, All the idols that humanity has made, makes, and will continue to make, they are not true gods. Instead, there is only one true God who actually exists. And Paul said that there is only one God, the Father, from whom all things in creation is contingent upon for its existence. And yet Paul does something very interesting here because he also says that there is also one Lord, and he says Jesus Christ, for whom all things are contingent upon him for his existence too. And what Paul is doing there, he's actually quoting back to, to the Shema or to this great confession of monotheism for Israel that says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what Paul does there then is that, hey, all these different idols that humanity makes, they do not exist. People make them. They come from their sinful desires. They do not actually exist. But the God that does exist, the God of whom everything in the universe has come from he is not only one, but he is actually three and one because he's linking not only God the Father here in, the, in, the, in this passage, but he's also linking Jesus to the Shema as well, referring to both of them as fully God because they both share the same substance. They're both divine in nature, but also being distinct persons. In other words, the Father is God, the Son is God, and even God the Holy Spirit is fully God throughout the scriptures as well. And so, this one true God is the God of the Bible, and yet he is not only one, but he has revealed himself as creator, as savior, and as triune, three in one. Not like the false gods who don't exist at all. And so if there's anything then spiritual about these false idol worship. It is really just really the demonic influence behind these idols, behind these idols, causing people to not worship the one God that does exist, to rob Him of his glory, and to then to place it to those gods, these idols that are not gods by nature. And, and I had a, a pleasure, it was, it was a sad experience, but I actually had an experience when I went to Malaysia um, last winter, um, to Kuala Lumpur, to actually kind of see this in action. I was taken into the into the Indian quarter in Kuala Lumpur, the capital city of Malaysia, and he kind of, and he brought us down this giant alleyway. There was all these different flowers and stuff like that. It smelled beautiful. These these bouquet of flowers were were very beautiful, um, you know, very floral. And yet, you want you know what you want to know what the missionary told me what these flowers were used for? They're making all these flowers because at the end of this at the end of this um, this um, alleyway, there is there is a shrine to Shiva the Destroyer. They're making all these flowers for this false god at the back. And so he eventually took us to the back. And we saw this little shrine, Shiva the Destroyer. He's one of the, the, the one of the many gods in Hinduism. And he's a, and if you don't know anything about him, he's the he's Shiva the Destroyer, he's the god of war. This shrine was very violent. It had this guy, this 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 this, this stone statue with his tongue sticking out, with a guy's decapitated head in his hand. It was a very brutal and very bloody scene. And yet, just kind of looking at this, I was just you know just looking at it, just hearing the missionary talk. And then behind me, some group of Indians came by and says, "Oh, that's a very powerful god." And I can't really shit. I don't know how to say this with words. But it was at that moment when I heard that from these Indians who believed in this god to exist, who was no god at all. I just felt this really... Deep spiritual darkness. I I can't explain how it really felt. You need to be there to really experience it. This place was dark. You felt it. And I was just like, Lord, I pray for these people's souls. And then the Lord was able to open some doors for me and and my missionary team to preach the gospel. But there is an example, even to this day in the 21st century, that people actually create flowers each and every single day to give it as an offering to this false god. And even to believe that this false god is a real god and who is very powerful. And yet, Paul says, that is not a real God. There is only one God who is powerful, and that is the creator God of the Bible. And so even by me saying that, though, I do need to say something about, you know, ancient and modern idolatry, especially when it comes to statues. Because we as Westerners, I think we have the tendency, and this is myself included, to have this kind of modern snobbery, if you may put it, when it comes to those in the past and present who worship actual physical idols. Because we think that, like, oh, we know better than to worship false idols. That's just silly, right? And yet, there's, a, there's actually a couple lessons we can learn from this reality. I'm not defending idolatry at all, but there's just something very interesting about this nature of this type of worship. First, as I mentioned before, we all worship. We all worship idols in some way, shape, or form. Just because you don't have an idol in front of you physically to bow down to, like many people in the world, again, remember, There are various idols hiding in your heart, even right now. It could be money, it could be comfort, that's a big one for us as Americans. Pleasure, family, security, school, work, you name it, both good and bad. Anything you place your trust in, remember, anything you place your trust in for hope besides God, that is an idol. Truly then, as the French theologian John Calvin says, our hearts are just idol-making factors. They're just continually bubbling forth all these various kinds of idols. And if we're honest Christians, if we're honest loved ones, this was true of us. As Paul is condemning the Galatians here, this was true of us as well as Christians. Because we all served and worshipped idols. As Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were all children of darkness. We were all children of wrath. We were so wicked that we were just following our own sinful desires, worshiping anything that came our way as God besides the one who is truly God. That was our life before Christ. And even if we're honest now, loved ones... We still have idols lurking in the very depths of our hearts at this moment. And as a result, part of the Christian life then is that you gotta be, you got to be growing and seeking out these idols in your heart. you got to be growing and seeking them out and destroying them, putting them to death, destroying them, right? Because it's, it's only when you do that that you're going to not only cease in your love of the world and grow in your greater love of God. And just to kind of give a helpful analogy here, consider this, this analogy if I had a cup and I had air. If I was to ask you what is the fastest way to get the air out of this cup, most of you would say, "Well, just put water in the cup, right?" Exactly, and that then that is how it comes when it how you need to deal with idols. When it comes with dealing with idols, especially if you know like, "Oh yeah, I don't I have a problem with with that or, or this this sin," but I'm just going to ignore it, right? And even if you ignore it, you may be good for maybe a day, maybe a couple hours, maybe a week if, if, you're, if you if if you have a strong will, but it's only a matter of time before you turn back to your master turn back to that idol. Unless you replace that idol by not only destroying it, but filling it with something greater, that is the love of God through the gospel, then you will not be able to fully get rid of that idol. And so you gotta grow in your love of God because only when you do that will you grow in your hatred of the idols in your heart and the things of this world. And, and, and you do that by reading the Bible, knowing who God is, seeking him out each and every single day, depending upon him in prayer, you know, being part of the fellowship, um, you know, not only individually with your small groups or families, but even corporately as the church, because we can't do it alone. We need our church family to help point out the idols in our hearts, as Carlos was kind of saying earlier, so that we can see them, we can destroy them, so that we can grow stronger in this race as Christians. And so that is how we got to live our Christian life, by continually seeking them out and destroying them until Christ returns to make all things new to where this won't be a problem anymore. And this all leads to a second lesson at this point. I cannot remember who, where I first heard this from, I think it was the late American thinker Francis Schaeffer, but he once asked a very interesting question. He said this about idols, who had a better understanding of the world, the ancient pagan or the modern secularist? And you'd be surprised that he actually said the ancient pagan had a better understanding of the world. Why? Well, he says, because at least they had a sense of the transcendent nature of the universe. Yeah, they believed in gods. That's very folly. It's very si- silly. But behind those gods, they believed that these gods represented something beyond this physical realm. Something that is not just this physical realm that we can measure through the scientific method, the five senses, but by worshiping these gods, like Zeus, the god of the sky, or you know, Poseidon, the god of the sea, or Hades, the god of the underworld, at least connected to these gods, they, they were thinking, like, hey, there's something beyond this physical realm. There was a spiritual realm that we cannot see, that we are not in control of. That is the benefit that the ancient pagan had, at least, back in back in its ancient times. And it's because of that, that in our culture, loved ones, in our American culture, we have lost this sense of transcendence. We have lost this sense of transcendence, which, which I believe leads to so many problems in the American culture. It's kind of like what the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, he was a writer um, in communist Russia and there's a lot of great evil that happened there. He says this, that all the stuff that happened in my own country, all this has happened because man has forgotten God. They have lost this sense of transcendence and because of that, all these horrible things have happened. And I think the same could be said about our country today. The reason for all the political turmoil, economical crisis, and just the social instability is due to the fact that people do whatever seems right in their own hearts, right? Instead of worshiping the one and true God, they are worshiping many false gods in their images, whether it be sex or identity, pleasure, especially autonomy, right? These are all idols of the heart that at the end of the day cannot satisfy the deepest longings in our hearts as human beings. It's like what the British writer C.S. Lewis once said. He made a very helpful observation about this. That if there's nothing in this world, or rather he says, there's nothing in this world that can satisfy you. There is nothing in this world that can satisfy you, giving you a living hope that endures forever. And yet... We do have this longing and desire for hope, for for peace in this life. And he says that because that's such a natural desire that we see in all creation, it only means logically that you are not made for this world. If there is nothing in this world that can satisfy your deepest longings in this life, then that only means that there's something outside of this world that can only satisfy these deepest longings. In other words, you alone were made for God. You alone were made for God to worship him as the Creator and to enjoy Him as the essence of perfect goodness, as the essence of love, of beauty, of joy, as the one and only true God alone. That is what we that is what Paul teaches us here regarding the idol worship of the Galatians in the past, which is really our past history as well as Christians. Therefore, in light of that, how does that matter to us, right? How should we live in light of that? And I think the Apostle John, as he, as he says in the end of his first letter, he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. And that is the thing that we need to keep in mind here about this, about this warning of idolatry. Keep yourself from idols. Whatever you know is an idol in your heart, get rid of it immediately. Don't flirt with it anymore. Get rid of it, destroy it. If you need help from the church, call up a brother. Call up a sister to help you out to deal with the sin so that you're no longer in shackle to this idol anymore. Serving it, leading you to death. Be free from it Find your freedom in Christ Jesus and live for him because only when you do that are you able to find this, this joy, this, this peace, this hope because you're no longer trying to you know, you know, please your master, which, which, which you can never please, right? It's sin. It, it, it's, it's only gonna lead you more hungry, leading you to your own demise, death. Rather, put that off. Put on Christ. Rest in him. Repent of your idol worship and live for God. That's why he came in the first place was to free us from our idolatry. Therefore, put off your old man or your old woman and embrace Christ. Live for him. Flee from idolatry. And so it's this kind of knowledge then that before knowing Christ by faith alone, we all worshiped false gods. And because of that, that is worthy of eternal damnation in hell. And yet... There is still another belief that is even worse than this unbelief that I was just sharing with you right now. And this really is going to show why the second kind of knowledge really shows why denying the gospel, not just as an unbeliever, because that's bad, right? It's worthy of internal condemnation. But if you deny the gospel as a Christian, knowing the gospel, hearing about the gospel, that at the end of the day is the worst form of unbelief. And so this is the second kind of knowledge that Paul compares here. That now knowing the gospel, you worship the one and true God. Now knowing the gospel, you worship the one and true God. And so look at Galatians 4.9 here. After he talks about about the Galatians' previous life, the past, about not worshiping God as unbelievers, now consider what he says here in verse 9. He writes, But now... That you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And so Paul is making a comparison here. Where the Galatians at one point did not know God, they have come to know God, especially through the ministry of the Apostle Paul himself. And yet Paul is doing something very interesting here. Although he says that the Galatians have come to know God... He immediately corrects himself. Do you catch that? He immediately corrects himself by saying that they are actually known by God. Yes, you know God, but to put it more precisely, you're actually known by God himself. But why does Paul do that? And what does this mean for us as Christians? Well, this is a rhetorical move. Paul is doing this for the sake of emphasis. He wants to emphasize that, yes, if you're a Christian, you know God. Sorry, I didn't mean to touch that. (laughs) You know God. You have come to faith in God, and yet you're only able to know God because God first knew you. That is what Paul is getting at here. He's emphasizing that the work of salvation is not a work of man and God or a work of man. It was something that God initiated himself. Salvation is a work of God alone. Because it's impossible. It's impossible that before Christ, if we were dead in sin, not only could we not come to God on our own works, but we didn't even want to. We love our sin. We love reveling in our own immorality. And yet God knew you, if, you're, if you believe in him by faith. And he, and, and he knew you so that he would bring you from your death and sin to life in King Jesus. And what's interesting here is that just as we're just as we're saved by faith in Jesus by justification, that is you're declared right before God. That's something that you don't do yourself. Jesus does all the work on the cross. He dies on the cross in your place. He pays your penalty in full. And then if you believe in Him by faith and repent of your sins, all your sins are placed in the Christ account, pays your account in full, and all the perfect righteousness that He earned as a perfect man, He gives it to you as a gift. Not that you are worthy of it. Not that you can ever earn it. But you received it as a gift. Why? Because he believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior by faith alone. That act is passive. As, that act is passive. Where God's, Jesus' work on the cross is active. is something that he does. We passively receive the benefit of that by just simply believing in him. And as a result, when you believe in Jesus as well, that is really a passive act as well. Because you're only able to know God. You're only able to know God because he first knew you. And the reason why God first knew you, because he first loved you. He first gave himself on the cross for you not because he not because he had to or you were worthy of it but out of his own out of his own good pleasure to bring himself glory. Consider what Paul says in Romans eight twenty to 30 about this reality. These are famous famous scriptures here. He says, that, And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And what Paul is getting at there is that when he says that he foreknew you, he didn't look down the corridors of the time and was like, oh, my, oh, my child, he, he's going to believe in me, I, therefore I choose him. That's not how this word is working here in, in the context of this passage. Rather, when God says he foreknew you, it means that he first knew you, but it means that he first loved you. There's, there's really an, an intimacy in this word here. And so that at the end of the day, we didn't choose God, right? We didn't want anything to do with him, but God first knew you. And as a result, he predestined you to salvation. And what did he do? He calls you to salvation. He sends his son Jesus to die for you on the cross. And as a result, you are given eternal life. And as a result, you will one day be glorified. You will one day be partakers of the divine nature that when you die and and leave this fallen world, Christ is going to come one day and make all things new. This broken universe that was originally made good, God will, when they come, and make it all things new. And because you believe in him by faith, not because you first knew him, but because he first knew you, you will inherit that promise of everlasting life. You will get to inherit Jesus forevermore. The one that you were made to worship, the one whom you were made to imitate and live for him that is what Paul means here that yes you know God Galatians or sovereign way you know God but don't forget it's only because God first knew you you couldn't choose God because of your sin nature and yet out of God's good grace he loved you he knew you and he gave his son Jesus to die for you because of such love that is what Paul is getting at here and yet despite this beautiful reality of the gospel he then asks a question to the Galatians Galatians you know this You have embraced this. I, as an apostle of Christ, have taught you these things. You have sound doctrine. And yet, look at what he says in verse 9. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? And that word there, turning back, it carries this idea of turning away from something. You were walking in one direction, say on one path, and now you turn away from that, and now you're pursuing a different path. That's kind of what this word means here. And there's a couple different ways how the New Testament uses this word. One One way it is often used is to turn away actually from the worship of idols, where you're worshiping idols as an unbeliever, you believe in Jesus by faith, you turn away from that, and you turn to faith in Jesus. Consider what Paul writes to the, to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.9. He says to them, "...for they that is the world, they report us concerning you that how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God." And so this was, so Paul received a report from not only Christians, but people in the world, unbelievers, how radical the conversion of these Thessalonians were. That yes, they were living like the world, they looked like the world, they smelled like the world, they were worshiping like the world. And yet because of the gospel of Jesus, they turned away from these things, they realized how weak and broken they were, how worthless they were, they turned away from them and they turned to worship of the living and true God. God. That's really a testimony to the faith of these Thessalonians, and as a result they are persecuted greatly for it. But how also is this word turn back used as well? It's used for turning back from idols, which we should all do daily, loved ones, and yet sometimes it is used to turn away, not from idols, but from the gospel message itself. Consider what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter two twenty-one 21-22. This is addressed to false teachers that arose in the church in his day. He writes that for it would have been better for them, the false teachers, and look at what he says. Never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Did you, did you see what Peter was saying there? It would have been better for these false teachers who have never known the gospel and still go to hell than if they turn away from the gospel after they've come to a knowledge of the gospel itself. Really, when it comes to not only Peter's example, but even what Paul is getting at here in Galatians, these Galatians they're not just turning away from the gospel of Christ the Messiah. They're turning, knowing who Jesus is, hearing the gospel preached, and even living it out for a time, by them denying the gospel, they are turning away from this good news, this salvation, this hope of promise to that of weak and worthless elemental principles of the world. And if you don't know what that word means, because it's a very technical term, Paul utilizes this phrase back in verse 3 of chapter 4. And when he used that word back there, he was referring to the law of Moses. That for Israel, um, that the law of Moses, it was, it was there to function as a tutor. It was there to guide us, to realize how sinful we were so that we could be ready to embrace faith in Jesus the Messiah. And yet, when Jews go back to the law for salvation, for salvation alone, then they're returning to these weak and elementary principles of the world, that they're returning to a standard that cannot save them. It's important, and it's good, the law was there to show us how much we need Jesus, and yet... If you if depend upon that for salvation, then that is worthless and that is weak. And yet, how he is using it here for the Galatians, because the Galatians are not Jews. Remember, he is referring to their past pagan worship. Yes, you did not you did not grow up obeying the law of Moses as Jews, but you did grow up worshiping false idols worshiping the natural elements of the world because again many of these gods that these ancient pagans like the Galatians would worship did did consist of like hey like Poseidon he's the god of the sea or Zeus he's the god of the sky all these different gods were connected to some natural phenomenon most of the time and by Paul then making this connection here that yes going to the law of Moses if you're going to depend upon that for salvation legalism that's worthless if you're going to go back to pagan worship, that's worthless. And by Paul making that same connection, he is doing something quite shocking here to his audience. His point is that if you go to legalism to go to the law, that is just as bad as if you were to be a, if you were to be a pagan. If you're a Jew trying to find faith, salvation in the law, you are just as bad, if not worse, than someone who does not know the law of God and yet just you know, worships their false gods there. Why? Because both are examples of false worship. Both are examples of heart idolatry before God. I think Martin Luther says something very helpful. He was a German theologian about this phenomenon. He actually comments here in his commentary. He says, it is easy to fall in faith. May not happen to me. Take heed lest we fall, right? It is easy to fall in faith. Whoever has fallen from the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone is ignorant of God as an as an idolater. Therefore, it is all the same whether afterwards they return to the law or worship of idols. If you worship anything and depend upon anything for salvation but God himself, then that is idolatry. That is false worship and the reason why Paul is calling out the Galatians here because he says at the end of verse 9 the purpose of why they're doing it or the result he says Galatians if you keep going down this path you're going to be slaves to these things once more yes you believed in Jesus you are set free from these from these cruel slave masters but if you keep going down the same path you're not only going to be enslaved to these slave masters at the end of the day but you're actually going to prove that perhaps you were never saved in the first place the result of the Galatians trying to be saved by their own good works, they at the end are just going to enslave themselves to the very things that they were set free by faith in Jesus. And this leads to a very significant critique that people in our culture will say about that. Because they will see that, hey John, why, why is it wrong that the Galatians are just doing their own thing, right? Why is it wrong if I just do my own thing, right? What's so wrong with that? And not only that, but they look at us as Christians and say, well, how does the God of the Bible determine what you believe as Christians feel and do? How is that right? How is that good? Because not only does it limit you to freely choose how you want to live, but it enables you to be your true authentic self. This is the dogma of our culture. Because the freedom to determine how you live is how you ought to live. Such as follow your heart. That is the essence of what our culture lives by. And yet, the problem to that type of thinking is that when you think that you need to be your true authentic self by, you know, living according to your own standard of truth, that really removes, your individual creation of truth, it removes your right for, for any moral outrage. Let me repeat that. Any individual creation of truth, it removes the right for any moral outrage. Because you can see at the end of the day, I just want to do my own thing. I want to um, do what makes me happy, what, what, what makes me feel good. You can do that. You can be your own standard of truth by falsely worshiping your idols, but just know at the end of the day, you remove yourself a transcendental standard of how you should know what is right and wrong at all. Consider what, they, consider what another British writer, G.K. Chesterton, he says about this. He says that every act of the will is an act of self-limitation. That is, Say, if I, say I came up here to preach, right? I'm limiting, limiting myself to all the various decisions I could have done today by coming up to this pulpit and preaching. So this act of freely choosing to do this, I'm self-limiting myself to this decision. That's what Chesterton means there. He continues, to desire action is to desire limitation. In every sense, every act is an act of self-sacrifice because when you choose anything, you reject everything else. And so when people say that, hey, John, I don't appreciate you telling me how I should live. You condemning the Galatians, you saying that we have to live according to God's law, that's limiting to how I want to be on the inside. And yet by you doing that, you're actually limiting yourself to what you want to do at the same time. So at the end of the day, no one's free. We're all enslaved to something. It's just a matter, is what you serve the one true God or is it false idols? And as the scripture says, as Paul says, as the Bible says, everyone is, is a slave to sin. Why? Because only Christ could set the sinner free from death to life in him. As Jesus says himself in John chapter 8, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is what Christ does. And that is how we can only find freedom. Not by being our true, authentic self. But if you want to be your true, authentic self, don't follow your heart, follow Christ, because he will free you from your false idol worship and he will help you to live how you were originally made to live, to glorify God and to enjoy all these good gifts and creation as an expression of worship to him. So we're all slaves to someone. We all worship something. You will either be enslaved to sinful desires of your heart or you will be free slaves of the one you were created to serve and that is Jesus Christ. And yet all this then leads or highlights really the apostasy the reason or, or how the Galatians were denying their faith in Jesus. And so look at how Paul describes what their apostasy was looking like or how it was beginning. Look at Galatians 4.10. He says, Galatians, you observe days and months and seasons and years. You observe days and months and seasons and years. And in some translations, because this is what the Greek highlights here, he says that the Galatians were not just observing these various days or holidays, as if I can put it that way, but they were carefully observing them they were careful to mark these days in their calendars and when that day come to observe them and to make sure they were keeping them why because these different holidays that they're trying to keep as paul's going to get at they believe that if we don't keep these if we don't remember them then we're not going to be saved it's kind of like us saying that hey if you don't keep thanksgiving if you don't keep christmas then you are not going to be saved that's that's kind of what the Galatians were doing here but not with those holidays but with other holidays that paul is alluding to here and what Paul was ultimately alluding to here regarding these days, months, seasons, and years, he's actually alluding back to Genesis, um, how God made all these things in creation. He made days, you know, 24-hour day cycles. He made months, seasons, um, you know, fall, spring, winter, summer, and different years and stuff like that. That all comes from God. But how Paul is using, using this line, it is actually referring to all the various days that Jews would, um, would, would acknowledge in order to express their worship to God. For example, if you look at that word day there, that's referring to the Shabbat or Sabbath day of rest or the festival days that the Jews would acknowledge. Or how about the months? Well, months refer to the reoccurring events or new moons marking each new month, which was very important for the Jews to keep in mind. You can look at Numbers 28 to see see that reality. Or how about seasons? These most likely refer to the great feasts of the Jewish calendar, such as Passover or the Day of Atonement or the, or the Feast of Booth. Like if you ever see Pastor Steve you know, make, make his own little booth, that's the Feast of Booth. He's a Jew and he has the right to keep that. And you see that in Leviticus 23. Or if you look at the word years, that's referring to the year of Jubilee or Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which you see in Leviticus 25. But in light of all that right, why does that matter? And why should you be concerned about that? Well, because the galatian believers they were syncretizing their faith they were mixing this expression of jewish worship to their faith in jesus christ and they were saying at the end of the day jesus you're not good enough to save you from my sins I need to acknowledge these days. I need to go back to the law and to keep these commandments. Not that it's bad to keep the commandments, but I need to keep them in such a way so that I can make myself right before God. And Paul is saying that that is wrong. That is apostasy. You are denying the gospel at that point because where the cross of Christ is sufficient to save you from your sins because he takes care of your greatest need by him coming down himself as a man, by you denying that and going to this, you're just spitting across, you're, you're spitting in Christ's faith. You are turning away from him to do your own thing. That is apostasy. That is unbelief at the highest. And as a result, that's what the Galatians are doing. And yet, we got to be careful as, as well, loved ones, we can because we can do the exact same thing as well. How, you may say? Well, consider this. Consider just really... Our history as Americans for the last 100 years, if you don't know that, that much back into American history, it's okay. If you were to look back 100 years, though, you will soon realize that Christianity, it has changed a lot within the last 10 decades I'm having the pleasure with, with a couple of brothers and sisters at the church to lead our college group through a, through a classic work called Christianity and Liberalism by a chap named J. Grisham Machin. and he ultimately writes that book because in his day, you started to see the trend that people were denying key tenets of the faith. That the Bible, it's not the word of God. It's just a good book that we just need to live and follow as, as good moral codes, right? God, eh, he's, he's whatever you want it to be. Sin, eh, we're born good. Jesus, eh, he was just a good example. They are taking these key doctrines that the church has confessed and believed, turning them on its head and doing whatever they want in their own thing. I'm bringing these up because we, because many churches in, in our culture, um, for the past 100 years, have been on this trend of liberalism. In other words, they are denying the, the gospel. They are denying Christ so that they can do whatever seems right in their own eyes. They deny that this is the inspired Word of God. That this is the standard of right and wrong, and then are going inward into their own hearts to tell them what is right. And what is wrong? And as a result, they deny this is the word of God. They deny sin. They deny that God is the creator. They deny that Jesus is the God-man necessary to bring us to salvation in him. They deny all these things so that they can be accepted by the culture. So that they don't come off as condemning or as irrelevant. But they come off as tolerant people who embrace other for their differences, even if the Bible disagrees. And if the Bible disagrees with people in the culture, we're not going to call the culture to change We're going to change the Bible so that we can let people in the culture live however they want. That is that has been the the trend for many churches. Um, in, in America for the last 100 years. And just, you know, key examples of that is the Church of England. You know, Anglicans or the Roman Catholic Church, they are now embracing slowly this trend of one day, don't be surprised if you hear on the news that, you know, Pope Francis I embraces homosexuality as a legitimate form of marriage. That's just the times that we live in in this world today. And it's with that in mind that as the world constantly changes, loved ones, as the world is growing more hostile towards the gospel, as, as, as it is rebelling against, the gospel not only regarding marriage sexuality the sanctity of human life you know creation they are rebelling on all fronts don't be surprised that when because of that your faith as christians the cost of discipleship it is going to rise and you might find yourself whether at your work or or wherever like it might come to your work to stay and to make a living for your family um if you deny your faith or like hey i'm going to be a christian but I might lose my job because of it. You know, are you willing to make that sacrifice? Are you willing to, to remain faithful under the pressures of persecution, under the, under the pressures of the culture, telling you, like, you must deny Christ if you want to keep your job, if you want to be a good standing citizen in society, because if not, you're going to be seen as an outlier and we're going to treat you as, as, a, as a mere radical that we just need to get rid of at the end of the day. Don't be surprised when those times are coming because I do believe, believe that they are um, sooner or later. And don't be and, and don't be discouraged either, loved ones, because this has been the reality of all Christians throughout church history. We just live in a very unique situation in our time. But as the Galatians fell under the pressure of these Judaizers of denying the gospel to save themselves, you do you must not fall under the same under the same pressure when that time comes for you in your workplaces, in your families, in your neighborhoods, in your societies, in our culture right you can't fall into any of these things remain faithful abide in christ a message like this is so important because because like john like we don't really live in a time where you know i'm i'm, I'm experiencing a persecution good because this is this is a way to prepare you so that when a time does come you won't falter but because of your faith in jesus you will stand and you will not fall at all And it's because of that reality, then, that in all these things, as Paul is calling out the Galatians here, that because you are falling away, Galatians, I have these words here, right here, in verse eleven. So look at Galatians four eleven. This is what Paul says in conclusion of this of this paragraph here. He says that I am afraid, Galatians. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. As a result, the Galatians, they were starting to apostatize to deny their faith. And because of that, that concerned Paul. And remember, who planted the church in Galatia? Who first brought these people to faith? It was Paul. He was their spiritual father, their spiritual mother who nurtured them in the word of God, who trained them up to know who Christ is, to put off idols and to embrace Christ. And now to write these words to him, just feel the weight that Paul is what he's saying here, that my, my little children you are falling away I'm afraid that by that my laboring over you for the gospel was that a waste was that in vain and even if you look a couple of verses later in verse 20 of Galatians four he even says i don't even know what to do with you right like, I'm just so overwhelmed you guys are just like i don't even know what to do with you guys right that's how emotional and how personal this was for Paul and yet this points to a reality that we must keep in mind ourselves because that's how Paul ends this section here. And yet, what does that meant to show us? Right? Why, why does this matter to us today? And there's a parable that Jesus says that, that connects to what Paul is saying here. And it's one of the parables that, that haunts me. If there's, if there's anything that keeps me up at night, it's, it's usually this parable. And it's what he says in Luke chapter 12 about the unfaithful servant. I'm not going to read it in its entirety, so it'll take too much time. But basically what that parable teaches is that you had these two servants, right? One, you know, you had the master. He tells the servants, like, hey, you know, go and do this. And when I come back, you know, I want to see, make sure that what I told you to do was actually done. So the master leaves. The servant's like, I ain't going to do it. You know, you're a wicked man. You're cruel. I ain't, I ain't, I ain't going to obey you. And so he doesn't do anything, right? He doesn't do what his master told him to do. And so when that master came back and he sees that the servant didn't do anything, he then says at the end of that parable that, that because you knew what you needed to do and didn't do it, I am going gonna, gonna to judge you more harshly compared to the servant who didn't do anything, but he didn't know the same knowledge that you did. In other words, God will hold people accountable based on whether or not they know of him or don't know of him at all both are worthy of judgment because both are forms of unbelief but it's but it is you knowing who christ is it is you who have heard of the gospel and even if you respond to the gospel by faith if you live a life that 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 you embrace your your um your belief as a christian and then they're like eh, it doesn't work for me it's going to do my own thing be careful because that is not only a form of unbelief but it is the highest form of unbelief, I, I think, apostasy, because you're not just denying Christ out of unbelief, but you're denying Christ knowing who exactly he is and what exactly he could have done for you on the cross. And so it's with that in mind then that Paul is writing this to the Galatians. That he wants them to come back. He wants them to repent. And that's what he's going to keep doing later until he finishes Galatians. That He's going to you know, appeal to them emotionally and he's going to give them you know, the, the last two chapters. Like, hey, this is how you should live in light of this, right? The fruit of the Spirit. Hey, put off the fruits of the flesh. Put on the fruit of the Spirit this is how Paul is going to close his letter here and yet for us do we live in this way loved ones is this is how Paul is responding to his little children in the faith that he discipled them and yet do we live in this way when we see our fellow brother and sister who is off in sin or do we do we reach out to those that oh I haven't seen that brother in a quick minute like, or that sister I wonder if they're okay let me reach out to them right because you never know they might be fine they might be sick or whatever or you never know they might be falling away They might be stumbling into sin, and because of the guilt that they don't want to go back or because they love the sin too much, they might actually be in the process of apostatizing their faith. And as a result, do you, loved ones, are we as a church known for reaching out to those um, that need to be reached out in this way? Because if you look at various passages throughout the Bible, like the ending of James, the ending of Jude, even when we do excommunication, right, yes, we're not afraid to do it because that's what Christ says to do, but are we seeking these people in love? Are we reaching out to these people, doing all that we can, like, hey, you're in sin, I love you so much because I do not want to see you excommunicated, I do not want to see you in hell one day, you need to repent, and I'm here to help you through the process to do that. Do we even do that as all loved ones? I think, we, I think we do when we need to, but it's something to keep in mind as, as we consider what Paul has said here. And yet, also too, not only do we follow Paul's example here, but are we also careful to not to reject the gospel at all? Well? Because, because again, it's one of those temptations that will always be there. The cost of discipleship, it's always there, but it's gonna, it's gonna waver between different times and places. And when the time comes that there is a cost to discipleship, that we can't gather and worship in, in public anymore, that if you do believe in Jesus, you might lose your jobs, might, might lose, lose your families, might lose your lives, are you willing to persevere in the faith? And I'm exhorting you, loved ones, persevere in the faith. Because no, at the end of the day, it's not by your strength that you will endure to the end. It is God keeping you that he will keep you to the very end. It's, it's because that God knows you first. Yes, you know, but it's because he knew you first that he will keep you to the very end. So that no matter what you go through, you can rest assured that this is for my good. Because I know that God's using us to, to help me become more like Christ. And even if I see death on my front door, I do not need to be afraid. I do not, to be, I do not need to be afraid of losing my job or my family. Because I know that the one thing that matters is that I have faith in Jesus. And he knows me. And he is hanging on to me. And so the best way then is to to prepare for this type of trial or this type of persecution that does come so you don't deny Christ is to count the cost now. Count the cost now because as Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow me, right, you must first deny yourself, repent of your sins, pick up your cross each and every single day and follow me, right? There's a cost. You can lose your lives. But yet, is that not what we signed up for? I hope, it is what we, I hope it is all that we have signed up for because what Christ has done for us on the cross is far greater than just the mere comfort that we here have on this earth. And so with all that in mind then, all that Paul has said today, denying the gospel, as a Christian, it is really the worst form of unbelief because it is one thing to deny the gospel as an unbeliever, but it is another to do as someone who once who embraced the gospel by faith and then denied it. God will hold the one who knew Christ and denied him more accountable compared to the one who denied him and never knew him. And so it's with that in mind, loved ones, keep that warning in mind so that you do not fall and stumble when that time comes. And yet, just to encourage you though, I know I started off um, very negatively and perhaps this message was a very sobering message and I pray that it is at least a reminder that this is a reality that we all will most likely face one day and yet we don't need to be afraid because who our God is. Consider this great example. This is one of the famous martyrdoms of church history in the second century. This, this guy has a crazy name. His name was Polycarp. <laughs> Polycarp of Smyrna. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. In his, old and, in his old age, he was actually arrested by the Roman Empire because of his faith as a Christian. And due to his old age, the Roman Empire, like, all right, Polycarp, um, we'll give you one last chance to recant, you know? Just, 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 just deny Christ as Lord, you know? Just do it, man, so you can live. In response, you know how Polycarp responded? He says to the Roman Empire, or the people that were judging him, 86 years I have served him, that is Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You threaten me with a fire that burns an hour and is soon quenched, for you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment stored up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Do what you want. He was an OG, <laughs> the fact that he said that at the moment of death. And yet, he, the only reason why he was able to say that because he was not resting in his own strength, he was depending upon his, his faith in Jesus Christ. And so, loved ones, do not be afraid of the greatest threat that the world under Satan's power will use against you, which is death. I know it's scary. And, and, and I'll be lying if it didn't scare me at times as well when I think about it. And yet, you don't need to be anxious. I don't need to be anxious whether or not you will deny, deny Christ when they because of the cost of discipleship is too high Instead, we can all be strong and courageous. You know why? Because God will never leave you nor forsake you. He is with you wherever you go to the end of the age. You are His adopted son, brothers. You are His adopted um, daughters, sisters, by faith in the person and work of Christ. No one can snatch you out of His hand because God is greater than the one who is in His world, because the one who is in you, Jesus, He is the one who overcame the world by his death on the cross. And so embrace these reality, loved ones, as we keep this idea in mind. And just for anyone here who does not know Jesus, I exhort you, stop your denial of Jesus as Lord and Savior. You must repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. Because God, he originally made everything good. He made everything perfect, and he even made you in his image to worship him and to glorify him. And yet, because of sin... Sin and death has come into the world, and by nature, we are all sinners before God. And so, as Christians, we don't think we're better than anyone else. We just realize that we just have a great Savior, that we were were the scum of the earth. We were sinners. We were rebels. And that God so loved us that he gave his son, Jesus, to die on the cross, to to, to take care of our great sin problems so that we can have eternal life in him. That is good news for us. That could be good news for you if you repent of your sins, unbeliever. And embrace Jesus by faith and faith alone as Lord and Savior, and we know that's true because three days later He didn't. He was not in the grave. He rose again from the grave, and that is authenticated in the historical, reliable accounts of the Scriptures and through the eyewitness testimony of the Gospels themselves. And so, if you have not, if you have not embraced Jesus by faith, I exhort you, embrace him today so that you do not cease, and so, you, so you do not continue in your unbelief and go to hell, but that you can come to faith in Jesus and have everlasting life in him. And if you have any doubts, please talk to me or any of the other brothers or sisters here that you know, so that, so that we can help you wrestle through these doubts, because we want to help you not only come to know Jesus, but to have a living relationship with him. And so with all that in mind, then, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper as a church. Um, I'll I'll give the communion morning afterwards, but first let's just close off this time of, uh, of the sermon with prayer. So join me, loved ones, in prayer.